Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a pleasure to have with us Anthony Scarmucci, who set a record for the most time in the White House as, as a uh, communications director. When we come back, we'll have Anthony Scarmucci. Hi, and we're back. And Mooch, it's good to good to see you, man. How you doing? Good to be here. I want this podcast to last as long as my White House experience, Brian. Maybe we can do this for 12 days. What do you yeah. say? Well, you, you did set a record. <laughs> did did I know, or was Jason Miller technically there for one day? Well, that's a good question. Just something, just something to research. I just thought I'd throw that out there. You know? Well, and that's a scary thought that he was there for a day, but uh, that's a different. <laughs> so the title of the show is just ask the question. So I'm just going to ask you the question. What do you think looking back on uh, or looking forward, I guess, to the uh, 2020 election? How do you see it falling out? Well, everybody talks their book, right? I mean, you know, so obviously I want Trump to lose. And people say, oh, if he says Trump's going to lose, he's just talking his book. But I really do think Trump is going to lose. And I, and I want to explain why I think he's going to lose. He is the Hillary Clinton of this election. And so last time, four years ago, rightly or wrongly, I like Senator Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton. I, I get along with her. But she was polarized. Either you liked her or disliked her. And there was a lot of anti-Hillary Clinton voting going on in that election. Right. And so Donald Trump is the new Hillary Clinton. That Let me stipulate that. So you're so, saying he's polarizing. What, yes, he's polarizing. Yeah. And so now there's a fervor to vote him out of office. There's an increase in registration. I've worked on this, by the way. I just did a uh, voter registration fundraiser with uh, Governor McAuliffe. I've done voter registration uh, awareness in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania for Democrats. And so there's an increase in registration. That's number one. Number two is he's failed at the job. Just if you look at it empirically and you look at it objectively, he absolutely sucks at the job. And so now, oh, he's saying that because he dislikes Trump. No, I actually don't dislike Trump. Brian, you know me well enough to know I don't hold grudges against anybody. Uh, John Kelly and I, I've become very close personal friends. He fired me in the White House. And you all didn't uh, get along in the White House. What's that? And you didn't get along too well. Well, the well, 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 I didn't really have a chance to get along. His first official move was after he got sworn in was to fire me. But, <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, we were sore at each other after the firing. I mean, right. it is what it is. But the point is, we made peace. We broke bread. I, I hold no grudges. I hold no grudge against Mr. Trump or anybody I'm just looking at him empirically and objectively, and he's failed the job on three criteria. He's made the country poorer. Uh, his decisions related to COVID-19 
destroyed the economy. If you look at what's going on in Western Europe or in Asia, they're already up and running. We're, we, we clipped off 200,000 deaths. We're likely to have 300,000 deaths by the end of the year. Uh, we have over 7 million people by November 3rd will have gotten COVID-19 that we're aware of. Obviously, some people are asymptomatic. I'm just talking about stats. Right, right. This is ridiculous, Brian. This is ridiculous. Our, 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 our deaths per million are 600. Uh, the deaths in South Korea per million are 20. Just give you an example. He's empirically failed at the job because he's a chronic liar, and you can't yell fake science at something like an epidemic. Well, he so does. <laughs> he does, but, but, but the epidemic is responding with, we don't care. You can tell the people two plus two equals seven, but we know it's four, and the people are dying, at least the people that you know, are not paying attention to the right way to handle things. And it's a real tragedy to watch this happen. Okay? And I, I always pray for your family, my family, and everybody I know and love. Right. Please don't let that happen to them. And obviously, don't let it happen to anybody. But So that's number one. He's always made us poor because he destroyed the economy. Worst uh, recession since uh, the 1930s. He's made us sicker for the same reason. Total mishandling of COVID-19. He is the Lyndon B. Johnson of our time, Brian. He's in a quagmire. If you read Caro's books about Johnson, Johnson did not know how to handle the Vietnam War. He had no flexibility in his personality. He was missile locked on. And I use the word missile locked here because he was influenced by the Cuban Missile Crisis. He had thought that the two Kennedy brothers did not back down from Khrushchev. It came out later in Graham Allison's book that they traded the, the, tur the, the missiles for, right. that was in the mid seventies. And so he had no idea. So he wanted, he was living in the ghost of John Kennedy, JFK. And so he was torqued missile locked on the Vietnam war, a result of which it blew him out of the seat. And that's what's gonna happen to Trump. He is the modern day LBJ. His skill set is not equipped for this job at this moment. And his self-loathing, you and I both know he hates himself, just by the way he acts. Yes. His self-loathing is going to be his undoing. The last thing is he's made us weaker. Uh, he's annihilated our alliances. Uh, he said at a rally over the weekend that our allies treat us worse than our enemies. And in many ways, our enemies treat us better than our allies. I don't know if you saw him say that. Yeah, I did. But this is the type of despicable nonsense that he's saying, and I just believe that there are more of us, smart, objective people, looking at the situation clinically. And if you look at the poll numbers, the poll numbers say roughly, you know, 53-41 for Joe Biden. Now, the question is, is, is there a hidden Donald Trump vote out there like there was last time? Well, Nate Silver says no. He says his models have factored in that. But let's say that there is. I don't think it's enough to make up an eight-point deficit. He can it still boil down to just the those few swing states, though. Yes, exactly. But he, but but to look at the math. If you're eight points behind, okay, you can't win. You can't win with forty-two percent of the vote. Even even you know you just can't do it. You know the algorithms don't work. Now, is there some hidden vote there? If he can get himself to forty-six, and then you look in those swing states, right. yeah, could he pull the inside straight again? Yes, he might be able to do that. Uh, but I think it's very unlikely, Brian. And, and, but, but here's the thing that should scare you. The influence of Fox News, conservative uh, radio, uh, Donald Trump's mouth and his, the vitriol of his rhetoric, there's something systemically wrong in the country. So yeah. let's say he does lose 
and you're cutting the head off of Trumpism, Trumpism is still going to exist. There is something wrong in the country. We have to address the nationalistic fervor. We have to address the systemic dilemma that there's a good 35 to 40 percent of the people that have disaffected from the establishment politician. And they're angry, Brian. Yeah. Some of them are, believe it or not, with Bernie Sanders and a lot of them are with Donald Trump. But they're angry and we have to figure that out. This is a systemic problem. Uh, this is well, like interwar Germany. Trump's defeat will be like post-war Germany. It'll be like, okay, how do we return to civic virtue? How do we return to national purpose? And how do we bring these people back into the fold? Uh, and how do we uh, rethink the way our politicians are going to handle things? Because if we're going in a Donald Trump direction, this is going to be a very long 10 or 15 years for us. The lying, the nationalistic fervor. I'm watching his acolytes, who I thought were principled guys uh, five or six years ago, and I'm really shaking my head. That would include Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, uh, Ted Cruz. Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton, Tom Cotton served. Tom Cotton served the United States. Tom Cotton, to me, when I met him for the first time, I actually met him at a Charles and David Koch conference, and I was like, okay, Tom Cotton, I can relate to. He went to Harvard Law School. He served the country in the military. He's a conservative with principles. But Tom Cotton has now become a acolyte of Trumpism, and I, I don't understand it for the life of me. And I'm, I'm hoping. Well, I'll go with you on. I'll go with you on everybody but Mitch McConnell, and and because I've known him since '78, and I've never. The first advice I was ever given about Mitch when I went to interview him is, if you're going to talk to Mitch McConnell, you have to understand he's about one thing and one thing only. And I said, what? And they said, Mitch McConnell. So Mitch is. I, I think he's not okay. so much an acolyte as he is. Yeah, well, then, then him and Trump, him and Trump have a lot more in common yeah. than I would think. You know, yeah, I, they're very narcissistic, and he likes to. He'll, he would throw Donald Trump under the bus for for his own benefit, and yeah. Trump would throw him under yeah. the bus. Yeah, well, listen, I, here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I, 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 I disappointed in Mitch because I was one of Mitch's fundraisers. I was a bundler for Mitch. Uh, six years ago, in my office, Mitch and I spent an hour together organizing a fundraiser, a New York City-based fundraiser, and so. Tony Carbonetti, Anthony Carbonetti, right. who was the right-hand person for uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani, is very close to Mitch. And, you know, I won't speak for Anthony Carbonetti. I just speak for myself. I could not be more disappointed than Mitch McConnell, okay? You know, Kevin uh, McCarthy's a different beast. You know, Kevin is a likable guy. But, but Kevin, you know, saw the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in California and the Jesse Ventura movie in Minnesota. And so he jumped on Trump early. And I think he is probably got, you know, a conscious break, uh, but he's not going anywhere. I mean, my, my, my point is, is that he's more pliable. Mitch is more sinister. Yeah. Being well, honest. My, so, my question to you so is. It sucks because, you know, I was a lifelong Republican. Ah, and now right. I'm in the Lincoln Project halo where we're like, okay, we have to see what the hell happens here. Can the Republican Party be rebuilt by it? So or do we have do to start think, a new party? You know, What do you think the Republican Party that's that's where you, you you led me there, and that was my question. Yeah, the Lincoln Project and others and Republicans who are now not Trumpers are saying, "Look, this isn't what we're about." So, what is the republic? What is the Republican Party, or what should it be about? If you were running the Republican Party, what would what do you think it should be all about? Well, I, I'm a big fan of opening the tent. 
you know, the great irony is one of my nemesis in life, Reince Priebus, uh, commissioned a study in 2012 about the Republican Party and basically said if the Republican Party doesn't open the tent demographically and doesn't open the tent across income strata, right. uh, you're going to have a minority party forever. Now, the Republican Party, using primarily the Charles and David Koch playbook, have done an absolutely brilliant job with less. What do I mean by that? They have less voter registration yet they were able to control the House and Senate and the presidency 2016 to 2018. They controlled the House during the Obama administration. They've done this through gerrymandering. They've done this through voter suppression. They've done this through this uh, Rubik's Cube. I'm sorry? Non-democratic means. Yes, 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 they have. And so so that that is a spoiling thing, okay? the Republicans, McConnell is issuing a statement over the weekend about the Supreme Court and that the American people have voted them in to do this. But if you look at the the Senate, the Senate is one of those things that our founders put in to protect against the tyranny of the majority, right? The Senate, tyr- tyranny of the majority, two senators in California, two senators in Rhode Island. The Electoral College, again, the tyranny of the majority, right? If you read the Federalist Papers, uh, Hamilton uh, was very keen on saying, you don't want mob rule. Ultimately, you have to have uh, minority voters. And again, I don't mean minority voters in the sense of African Americans. I'm talking about less than the majority yeah. of the popular vote. They need to have a voice. That leads, to a tyrant, that, that leads to a tyranny of the minority. Yes, yeah, so that's yeah, exactly that. right. So that is a great term. I've never heard that term before. Uh, but I think that yeah, I think you're onto something because now the Republicans have perfected Brian the tyranny of the minority. Yeah. Uh, so but they're going to get overwhelmed. Today? They're going to get overwhelmed now because if they stay on Trumpism, that tent's going to continue to close. So who's going to vote for them? The people that are watching Fox News and buying catheters and my pillows during the commercial breaks are going to be the only people left <laughs> voting for them. So you see, you see yeah, I agree with you, so, but we're, so, what should so, the Republican Party So for me, party you're asking me if I'm running the Republican Party. Yeah. Of course, I'm not. But if I was, I'd be like, okay, let's go back to Reagan. Let's go back to Eisenhower. Let's think about the principles of conservatism and what we want for our party. Okay, and then let's expand the tent and make an outreach so give me three to as big of a demographic base as possible. So give me three things that you think the Republican Party should do that it doesn't. I mean, if you want to take the Republican Party, you can go back to Teddy Roosevelt, you can go back to Lincoln. Back then, they were what the Democratic Party is today. They were the big tent. And yeah. Teddy Roosevelt was as progressive as... Well, he, he invented the word. Well, the word progressivism came into power With during Teddy. the Roosevelt era. Yeah. And so he invented the word. And there's a great story uh, where he was close to Jacob Rees, uh, who was the journalist. Uh, he had a great relationship with Jacob Rees, who wrote the book, How the Other Half Lived, about the Lower East Side tenements. And they were basically collapsing into each other due to poor building codes. So here were the immigrants coming into Ellis Island. They were landing in Brooklyn and the Lower East Side. And these opportunists were creating these salt box tenements for them that right. literally were collapsing. And so Jacob Rees influenced Teddy Roosevelt when he was police commissioner of the city of New York. And Up to began Sinclair, the jungle, the same thing with meatpacking. hundred percent. It was absolutely, yeah. it was, it was the, the meatpacking. It was also the, uh, the, the, the way the robber barons were handling yeah. themselves. He and really, that's, 
it, it really turned the screws on antitrust. And so in many ways, and my grandfather hated Teddy Roosevelt because <laughs> In 1904 or 1905, he signed legislation that uh, Italians were to be treated as quote unquote non-Caucasian for immigration purposes. And so my, you, you couldn't get my grandfather to say a nice thing about Teddy Roosevelt. A hundred plus years later, I'm here to tell you that Teddy Roosevelt was one of the main architects of the middle class. He was one of the main architects of equalizing the society. And the great irony there for aristocrats, the more equality you have in the society, the happier people are. They're not going to come after you with pitchforks and tiki torches <laughs> and take down your McMansion. If they're happy, why do you have to have $200 billion when the common guy is struggling? You know what I mean? Nobody, nobody wants that. Nobody needs that. You know, Henry Ford was a despicable guy and obviously a racist, but he had a genius for social engineering. He was like, okay, you're going to make enough money to afford the car that you're producing. You're going to make sure you're in a single family house with that car. And there's going to be a good public school system next to you so that you can feel as a worker, some level of economic aspiration for your children. And this, and began, the work, yeah, this began the fomentation of the American dream. That's Republicanism to me. So, okay. And by the way, by the way, you know, here's the thing. Deficit spending has ballooned under the Republicans. Ballooned, yes. okay, it, it's, it's run amok. Uh, the, the Republicans are now about social conservatism and political expediency. I would want that party to be about opportunity and aspiration for all Americans. You know, uh, and, and, and by the way, I'm a Roman Catholic, and this is probably where it's a bridge too far for me as it relates to abortion. I am against abortion for me and my family. I'm a Roman Catholic, uh, but that's more like Mario Cuomo. I'm not against it for your family because in the First Amendment, you have a freedom of religion and you have a freedom of independence and liberty and individuality for yourself. That's a religious view, okay? And what happens with the evangelical community or the Catholic community they see it as a life or death issue. We can debate that because well, we they see it as an issue that if if I think it's not good for me, then it's not good for right. you, and it should it should be eliminated. Right. But it's, I but mean, it's, I'm a there's Catholic a lot of hypocrisy because it's the very same people that uh, they, they want a pro life stance, but they're for the death penalty. I mean, I, I, it's just. It's or they very, want a pro-life stance, and then when you get here, they don't want to support you with any kind of program so that you can well, lead well, a that's, that, life. That, that's my point. So, so look, I mean, to me, uh, I'm right of center on issues like we have to create an aspirational society, an opportunity for people. I'm all for unlimited upside. I have no problem with that, but we have to create a platform of equal opportunity. Should we tax the higher incomes more than we do? A. That's that. I mean, if you're well, unfortunately, the, well, it depends on it depends on what you want to do. If you want to run a hundred trillion dollars of deficit spending, then you shouldn't. But if you if you want to try well, I mean, if to run the Republican Party, if you were if you if you want that, if you if you want to go back to what the Republicans stood for, which was fiscal conservatism. Yes. Uh, the two great Republican presidents after Reagan were George Herbert Walker Bush and William Jefferson Clinton. Those were the two great Republican presidents. Okay, now pay attention, okay? 
Let, let me tell you why. Okay? You're not going to be the first one to propose that, but go ahead. No, no, I know that, but let me tell you why. Because uh, Dick Dorman went to George Orwell Bush and he created the pay-as-you-go legislation. Okay, and you remember that. And so just yeah. for your listeners, what was that? Well, if we're going to increase social services, we've got to have a tax increase. If we're going to have a tax cut, well, then we have to find something in the budget to cut. Pay-as-you-go. And, uh, and they put it in place in 1990, and then we had the recession induced by the Gulf War, and so we had uh, uh, social services incomes going up, you know, social outlays going up, and what ended up happening is George Herbert Walker Bush, to adhere to pay-as-you-go, signed legislation to create tax increase, and that hurt him a lot because he said, read my lips, no new taxes, but he was trying to yeah, get the country... Him. He's trying to get the country fiscally disciplined. Now, there's a, you know, Woodward's been writing these books forever, but there was a great book in 93 called The Agenda by Bob Woodward. And there's a very famous scene in that book where Robert Reich was arguing for deficit spending and Robert Rubin. So Robert Reich was my old college professor at Harvard. Robert Rubin was my old boss at Goldman. They were arguing with each other in front of Clinton in the Roosevelt room. One wanted deficit spending. The other one said, no, increase the taxes, we'll send a message to the bond market, we'll send a message of fiscal stability to everybody, uh, and you'll, by the end of your term, you'll be running a budget surplus. We'll, we'll have right-sized all these excesses over the last three decades. And so Rubin won, won out. And so they, they put the largest tax increase at that time in history. If you remember, Al Gore was coming down you're watching CNN, it was like the OJ and the Bronco. Al Gore had left the Naval <laughs> Observatory. He's heading up uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to vote. The tie, you know, and no Republicans voted for that tax increase. Right. They got the tax increase through. The economy went through an economic boom. Why? Clinton said, that's the last tax increase for my term, a result of which we're going to uh, be able to now appropriately allocate capital in corporations. We've got eight years or four years to allocate capital. So there was some long-term planning, long-term direction. And you know the end of the story. By, by 2000, right. you were running a 200 plus billion dollar budget surplus. The CBO during the 2000 election, 20 short years ago, was calling for a $5 trillion surplus by the end of 2010. Of course, we wrecked that with the Gulf Wars and so forth. But Point well, being is these problems are fixable, and well, you could lay, lay the case out for the American people for a rebirth of America, and you could lay the case out for the American people. There's going to be some short-term pain uh, for everybody. We've but already it, had it, that pain. I don't yeah, think they, I don't think anybody in the United States right now would be. I mean, if you told us, no, that but I'm talking pain, about tax increases. Yeah. I'm talking about taxing. That but, that would cause some pain to some people, but I think well, it would I be think worth most it. people would, if you can see that you're that it's being distributed equitably and being taxed equitably and that the president of the United States is being taxed and paying his taxes the same as everyone else, then you might actually have that pain would not be as painful. Yeah. But that's, that's the problem. And then, so let me go back to, before we go to the break, just three things that I think most people want that they don't think the Republican party under Trump delivers. Yeah. And should the Republican party stand for a, uh, equal taxation, B, uh, although they call it socialism, at least, you know, like we all pay for roads, schools, and hospitals, and 
should we continue to do that? And three, civil rights for everyone. Can the Republic, under you, do you think that the Republican Party should pay homage to those three tenets, those three basics? Yeah, yes. I mean, but I think so that then, that's a, I think that's a merit. You see that I don't see that as Republicanism as much as I see that as Americanism. I think that that should be core bipartisan tenets. I, and then I we, don't and then we can dif and Then we can differentiate on regulation. We can differentiate on, you know, certain contract issues and contract law. We can, we can, we can disagree on the magnitude of but handouts that, and things like that. I, but, I also think that under, under Trump, there is no doubt that those three things are not adhered to by the Republican Party. No, no, of course not. No, no, they, yeah. it's become the party of Trump. And so this is now a personality cult. It is, it is, as I have said, it's like Joe McCarthy had a baby with Charles Lindbergh and the baby got raised by Roy Cohn, <laughs> right? The baby's nanny was Roy Cohn, the single mom, single father. And, uh, and so now you got Donald the Trump. you gave me alone is scary, but that's... Yeah, but I'm just letting you know, that's basically what happened. And now you have this uh, narcissistic white nationalist yes. preaching... And let me let me say this before the break, if you don't yeah. mind, because people don't understand Trump does have a worldview. Now, the good news is he's intellectually vacuous. And my single contribution to American history thus far was getting Steve Bannon out of the White House alongside him. You know, as my suicide vest was going off, I was <laughs> reaching for Bannon and I blew him into Pennsylvania Avenue. You follow, you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so thank God, because he understood Trump's worldview. He's a well-read guy. Okay, and so Trump, you know, here's the thing with Trump's worldview. When it comes into his zone, think about it like a shooting gallery, he'll see it, then he'll start shooting at it as soon as it gets into the T, right. right? But he doesn't really understand it. So but, any, I'm sorry, anyway. But his worldview, I'm sorry, I was looking at that. Yeah, yeah just 30 seconds on what Trump's worldview is. He wants to take the United States back to 1890. Trump, America first wow. means an isolated America. It means America alone. It means literally a walled off America, literally and figuratively from the rest of the world. That's Trump's worldview. And so David Ricardo, the father of free trade, he said, uh, no country can get what they want or need at the lowest price unless they trade with other countries. So this cup that I'm holding in my hand, if this cup uh, costs two cents to make in China, $24 to make in the United States, Trump wants it made in the United States for $24. And so what he wants to do is wall off the country and he wants to take us back to a time where 85, 90% of what we consumed was manufactured in the country. And then he wants to jettison the country from its alliances. Okay. So even if we were capable of doing that, let's say that we could, it would throw the rest of the world into abject poverty and we would be faced with regional, if not global conflicts. And this is what Roosevelt gave one of the best speeches about isolationism, against isolationism in the 1940 presidential campaign. He basically said, if we don't do engagement, we're going to be faced with doing engagement in a way that we don't want to do. Yeah. So this was a conversation I was having with Trump on the plane flying around our beautiful country. He was saying, well, the NATO guys aren't paying their fair share. I said, okay, they're not. Okay, and if you want to push them to pay your fair share, that's fine. But remember, Marshall, Atkinson, 
Eisenhower, they didn't really care. They wanted us to have the largest military by a factor of a gajillion. And these people, which were once our adversaries that are now our allies, they could one day be our adversaries again. And so his attitude was maximum military for the US. Let's make the bet on our benevolent democracy. Okay. And it being a peacekeeper, right? That was George Marshall. Right. And and and, and Trump's Trump's attitude was like, no, I want to like get rid of the troops everywhere, bring everybody home, wall off the country. And you can't do that in our world. It's not a possibility. And that benefit, that, uh, and as we go to the break, that benefits who? Russia and China. Russia and China, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and regional players like Turkey. And regional warlords. Yeah, yeah, Syria, Turkey, yeah. any, Iran, it benefits Iran, Russia, China. You pick the adversaries of the United States, it benefits everyone. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, and we're back with Anthony uh, the Mooch, Scarmucci. And uh, Anthony, before we went to the break, we were talking about um, about who uh, isolationism benefits. But one of the things that we that we missed in talking about that is one of the things that isolationism does is it doesn't benefit, it doesn't benefit anyone outside of the United States. And you can make the argument it doesn't benefit us as well. I mean, it eventually leads to um, higher prices for, for stuff that we can't you know, like you were making the cup analogy and it contributes to a lack of um, well, a lack of education of the outside world. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it raises, I'll speak as an investor now, Brian, it raises investment risk premium around the world because- How so? You, okay, so the U.S. Navy, as an example, has lowered the risk of global commerce. Why? They are patrolling the sea lanes of co commercial activity. So imagine a disengaged U.S. Navy, the uh, increase in pirating, the increase in- hijacking of those ships and potential warfare. Uh, let's go to the uh, let's go to the Saudis for a second. One of the reasons why the United States has the global currency, which has given us so much flexibility during these crises to manipulate our currency, is for two reasons. One, we have a global footprint of our military. And secondarily, uh, Franklin Roosevelt signed with Ibn Saud, uh, MBS's grandfather, he signed legislation uh, that uh, basically was a treaty, not legislation, it was a treaty that we would provide naval escort on the transporting of oil tankers out of the Persian Gulf. And so if you look at Saudi Arabia, all of the oil is in the northeastern province. It's getting delivered outside of Saudi Arabia right now. Maybe it'll be a, a pipeline out to the Mediterranean through Israel someday. Who knows? But right now it's got to come through the Persian Gulf. Uh, U.S. Navy ships are there to protect it. Uh, and so, one, that gives us the reserve currency because the most valuable commodity in the world is priced in U.S. dollars. And number two, it's offered up some level of regional stability, whether we like it or not. The oil is in that region, right? Iraq, Iran, Saudi. And so, and so if you pulled out of these agreements, you pulled out of these treaties, who would fill the void? The Russians, the Chinese? And all of a sudden, the world starts to reflect and look like that. And remember, the exportation of our culture, and the reason why people are watching our movies and they are 
you know, what, you know, listening to our songs and all that other stuff has to do with the advent of globalism, and it has to do with liberty. You know, there, there's a reason why the Saudis haven't developed a pop star or the Chinese right. haven't really developed an international iconic pop star. They don't have the freedoms. Right. So they don't have the freedom to put the nose piercing in, the tattoo, and act crazy. And so therefore, the youth doesn't universally accept any of them because they're too locked in. So there's so many things that the U.S. I mean, that's a stupid example, but there's so many no, things that the U.S. You touch on something that's really important that, that we tend to forget is that when we isolate ourselves, that we're, we're denying the world the dream of liberty that, and the ideal that was the United States. And that, 100%. That, that it, but to take that a step further, that's what Trump supporters want. And as much as we talk about what we can and can't do and what you want the Republican Party to be, there are still 35 to 40 percent of the people in the United States who believe that Donald Trump walks on water. And there's nothing you're going to be able to do. I, I, facts be damned. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, keep, I yeah. keep being told that, you know, the, the uh, Holocaust was a hoax and the, the uh, coronavirus is a hoax and right. that only Donald Trump can solve the problems that apparently right. Donald Trump started. So you're not going to convince yeah. them. What do you do to educate or change the minds, or can you, of that solid base that he keeps deepening his resolve to? You, everyone says, look, he hasn't widened his base. Certainly yeah. he hadn't widened it, but he's deepened it. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, there's a personality cult. So there's a good, hard 20% of those people, no matter what, shoot people on Fifth Avenue. They're with right. Trump. He, he's figured out. He's a master at demagoguery, and so therefore he's got them locked in. But if you look at about a, six months ago, Axios came out with a poll. Are you voting for Donald Trump? Yes. Do you like Donald Trump? Do you find him a savory person? 69% of the people that were voting for him said no. Then why are you voting for Donald Trump? And the answer, and I'm going to synthesize it for you, is, well, I'm he's the last white man standing between me and the latte drinking black and brown people that are going to come up the, the, the latte drinking transvestites that are black and brown that are going to come over the transom and take over my government and my culture. And so what, what, what's going on, and this is something Fox news has narrated OAN news, et cetera, is that we're in a great cultural war. And so therefore, Donald Trump, with all of his flaws, he is your red tribal leader, and you need to back him no matter what, because he's the let him and Bill Barr are the last two white guys standing. So now I would submit to you that that culture war, war is a false narrative. And if Joe Biden or others could get to the people that are saying that, and say, okay, time out a second, look at America. You're going to have your guns in certain areas of America. You have your religious rights. You have your liberties. The people in Greenwich Village, New York, are not affecting your lifestyle in Montana or South Dakota. Moreover, there's been a vacuum of advocacy for uh, white, blue-collar Americans. I wrote about that in Blue Collar President. The president didn't like that book because it was too honest for him. Uh, but what I wrote about is the establishment Democrats, establishment Republicans, they left out those white blue collar people as they were, the, the, the Mitch McConnells were focused on tax cuts for the corporations and the corporatcrats. And the, the left was focused on social progress, social progressives, they were arguing over transgender bathrooms. 
and they left this vacuum of advocacy open for the president to come in and explore. Well, they antagonized them too. I mean, yes. the, the, the LBG. They're angry. They're stuff. angry. So, yeah. so what I said to the Biden campaign, make the case. Go into those areas. Joe Biden has a great origin story. He grew up in Scranton, 15 miles from where my dad was raised in Plains, Pennsylvania. And go make the case. Say, hey, I'm one of you. We left you out of the equation, but we have policies that we can put in place to make your lives better. I understand that Mr. Trump is an avatar of your anger. He's taking his metaphorical thumb and he's sticking it in Brian Karam's eyeball and the press and the establishment. And I understand that, but he's not providing you with any policies or any solutions to your dilemma. What, what would be one policy you think would, could apply to that part of America, that segment? Well, I think, I think it's a three-pronged policy. I think we need a industrial and manufacturing policy. We don't have one. Right. Uh, we have no 25-year plan in America for anything. And so what do I mean by a 25-year plan? We had a plan to go to the moon, 10 years. We had a plan to contain communism. Kennan said it would take 40 years. He was almost exactly right. They started in 47 and it ended in 89. I mean, he got it almost exactly right. And so the point being, we have to figure this out as a group of people over long periods of time. Our politicians are in a two minute fight on the cable news cycle beating the living daylights out of each other where they should be coming up with plans. Do the Chinese have a plan? Yes, they do. Their plan is 2049. Go look it up. It's 100 years after the revolution. They want to tell you how many high-speed trains and what they're going to do to their cities, the one belt, one road system across the Eurasian continent. Do the, uh, does MBS have a plan? Yeah, he worked on it with McKinsey. Read Blood and Oil is a phenomenal oh, three prongs, you, yeah. manufacturing. So manufacturing, industrial, you need to even up the educational system K through 12. It is completely right. uneven through the American system. If you wanna create a platform of equal opportunity for Americans, we have the technology, we have the resources. I can beam, particularly in COVID-19, I can beam the best teacher into the world into that inner city classroom. Right. You can figure out a way to provide social services. And then the last thing is jobs training. Because if you couple the jobs training with the manufacturing, all of a sudden we're moving people into different technical skills and they feel alive again, they, they feel purpose, they'll be less focused on coal mining, and they'll be more focused on doing something that fits in with the new economy. The reason why they're, they're clutching the coal mining is because that's been their historical way of making money, and they don't have the self-confidence, and they're too insecure, or the because we're not helping them, we gotta help them. Right. Well, they we have help them. We're, we're too wealthy as a group of people, not to help the less fortunate. And by the way, why does that have to be just a Democratic idea? That should be a Republican idea. Republicans should be talking about uneven outcomes, but a platform of equal opportunity. Okay, that's all people want. Okay, that's all I wanted. You know, I, I grew up, my father was a crane operator, Brian. Yeah. You know, he, was, he was operating a crane for 42 years. My dad worker. worked at a Ford truck plant. Of yeah. course, but you got yourself educated and now you're, you, you, you have the arc of your aspiration, the arc of whatever your calling was in life. You know, for me, I was like, okay, you know, I like business. I'm going to Wall Street. That goes back to the whole- uh, I'm like the Michael Corleone of politics, by the way. Just when I was trying to get the hell out of it, you guys keep bringing me back in. I'm, I'm back in the effing fight, you know? Right, exactly. 
but what you're talking about also is the immigrant arc. Uh, I mean, you're, yes. what, you're, you're second generation here, right? Or, or first generation? No, I'm actually, so my, tell me how it works. My dad was born here and my mother was born here. So I think I'm third generation, right? No, what, where's your grandfather? Second generation. I don't know how it works, but my, my, my grandparents were born in Italy. Yeah. And my parents were born here. Yeah. And, you're, and they were born here in the 1930s and I was born in the 1960s here. Yeah. That's, you and I share a similar arc in that regard. My right. grandfather came over here. My father was born here. And, and I'm born here. So that's the immigrant arc. And that's what we've always appealed to. And that was what the Republican Party did appeal to when it embraced immigration before Donald Trump. One of the things that you've talked about, though, all day long, and I got I to gotta hit on this, uh, you talk about the media and yeah. Fox News and uh, Newsmax and OAN. And I mean, you could talk about all of them in some form or fashion. What do you yeah. do to fix it? It is a problem. What do you yeah. think the problem is and how do you fix it? So it's an interesting thing, and I've actually thought about this, and I'll offer you this idea. In the 1980s, you had this uh, uh, legislation passed that led to the advent of conservative talk radio. Yeah, you and got I think you the need, fairness doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you have to have some level of a restoration of fairness. I think you have to have, I think you also have to have, if you're going to get the FCC license, you're going to have to have a some level of fact-checking to what's going on, that you can't be a disinformation provider. The Americans' freedom of speech uh, is, it's like yelling fire in the movie theater, right? You know, right. now people say, oh, well, you can yell fire in the movie theater, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You, you can't, can't, you can't harm others with your freedom of speech. And therefore, if I'm giving you the FCC license, you have to report the news accurately. You can't yeah. say that, you know, the science is not around the mask. You know, and the cool. question, of course, is who decides what's fair and accurate, but we've just, we have destroyed that concept right. over the last 40 years to where right. uh, my you know it was like Isaac Isimov once said my ignorance is equal to your uh, to your experience and it's not right. true just because right, you, exactly. there's no such well thing as alternative facts there's only the facts mm -hmm. uh, well, we'll take another short break and then we'll be right back back with uh uh anthony scarmucci the mooch <laughs> uh it's always good to see you man uh <laughs> and i'm here man i i i miss you by my 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 11 days <laughs> just wasn't fulfilling enough okay maybe, you know maybe if biden wins he'll, he'll give me an honorary one day in the white house just so i can have an even dozen days well no, you know, i'm kidding i'm not, i have no interest in that i'm, I'm actually kidding well i We'll just meet out at the the, uh, the cab stand out in L.A. again. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So so the question is, you're yeah. sitting on a deserted island. You got one band, one food, one book. What what are they? Okay, so it's an unbelievable question, and I got the gun to my head, so it's going to be Italian food, okay? I would like to say Mexican, but I would probably get sick of that over, over a week. So I've lived on Italian food my whole life. You could probably see it in my double chin, so I would say Italian food. Okay, the band, uh, you know, I want to say Led Zeppelin, okay, because that is my band as a youth, but I'm actually going to say U2, because okay. that's been the band for me. I would say Led Zeppelin was my band from 13 to 22, and those were my wonder years, but really U2's been my band from 22 to 56, so I'm going to say U2. I, I, I interviewed okay. them once they, they're a fun fun group of yeah, and i bet you like bono right i mean because i saw yeah. him speak i've never met him but i saw him speak in the uh 
in the, at, the, at the World Economic Forum. And so I interviewed him in so, college. That's, that's how so I know this is going to sound weird. I'm not going to say the Bible. I'm sure everybody says the Bible. I've read the Bible a few times. But I'm going to say this to you, and I, I can only read it in English, but I would encourage every single person to read this book. Yeah. It'll take you probably nine months to read it, okay? It's War and Peace by Tolkien. Well, great. Because, because I did not get to War and Peace until I was 45 years old. And it was always assigned to me in, you know, cl classic literature and all that stuff. And I never read it, you know. And then somebody said to me, Dunkoff, read War and Peace. And so there was a new translation out, America, two American writers, uh, English translation. And why read War and Peace? Because it is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it is all human emotion. And it is a really keen understanding of Eurasia, which is really the global island, right? If you stop and think about it, we have two continents on that one landmass. And the descriptions of the personalities and the war and what took place are absolutely stunning. And uh, it changed my perspective on the world reading that book. And it changed my perspective on how people think with each other. The Iliad is very good. So is the Odyssey. These are great books on human nature. Obviously, the works of Shakespeare. But I think Tolstoy understood our dilemma, our human condition of that as well as anybody. So uh, for me, it would be war and peace in the English translation. And the final question for you, when we talk about politics today, and I interviewed last week a guy, Dr. Uh, Tim Snyder, who put out a book called Our Malady. Lessons is, is this Tim Snyder, the book on tyranny as well? They yeah, write that as well, the yeah. Yale professor? Yeah. Great guy. Yeah, impressive guy. How can, when we say we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can you have life or liberty or the pursuit of happiness without equitable health care. So the question is, would where do we go with health care in this country? And that's an open ended question. Yeah. But, but so, the bottom line is can you support universal health care? Yeah, well, well, I mean here's the great irony and I tell my Republicans friends is they don't like it. Okay. Uh, the medicine got socialized in the United States in nineteen eighty six by Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Okay, so what do I mean? Ronald Reagan signed an obscure piece of legislation that said any person that walks into an emergency room, any person uh, who's sick, it is the incumbent upon the doctors and the emergency room technicians, they have a fiduciary obligation and a legal obligation to treat those people. And so, you know, if you got a sore throat and you're an immigrant and you don't have any health care, you can walk in the emergency room and get the penicillin. And so... It is a very uneconomical way of doing this, okay? The reason why I was always a big fan of Governor Romney is that Governor Romney understood that we needed a platform of healthcare in the country that would allow access to all citizens. And so he developed Romney Care. Obamacare was sort of a knockoff of it, where I disagreed with Obamacare was not on the idea of it, but just what Romney said about it, one size may or may not fit all because you've got 50 states and we're really a federalist structure, you, you, you should you know, maybe block grant it and equalize it that way. So if you're asking me, and we don't probably have time for this, but I actually think you need universal health care. Yeah. And you need some UBI in the country, some level 
of universal base income. And those are not socialist ideas to a person like me. As a conservative thinking person, you've just created the platform of maximum individuality. Because Brian, you didn't pick your parents. You know, your dad was working in, in, the, in the automotive plant. I didn't pick my dad. But we were blessed with something where we had enough of a platform where we could reach a good part of the American dream. And so if you really want the government to help create fairness in a society, what should the government do? Pave the roads, build a strong enough military to protect us and defend the people, and create a platform through law, the court system, administrative law, and education for an equal playing field or as equal of an opportunity as possible. If we can do that, okay, you've got maximum individuality. And so you remember that uh, the pursuit of happiness was really a Franklin, a Benjamin Franklin concept, right? He, he told Jefferson to strike property and put in happiness uh, because he was a transcendent guy and he understood that at some point we were going to abolish slavery. At some point we were going to not focus on property rights being for the voter and, 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 and that ethereal idea of happiness would be something that would be universal. It would be like basic income. So, so to me, you really want to re-engineer America. We got to fix the educational system. You got to get people the baseline healthcare, particularly catastrophe healthcare, God forbid. And then if you give them enough income, all of a sudden they can become artists, writers, they can be become legislatures, they can they have this platform to experience the arc of American aspiration. So all of those things are doable, by the way. And and people say, oh, they'll bankrupt us and all that. That's bullshit. It will not bankrupt us because it creates a virtuous circle uh, and it, it's part of a good, healthy public, good public uh, social contract, if you will. So we don't have enough time to go into all the reasons why. But that's, that's a good I, answer, though. I'm a big champion of Andrew Yang. When he first started saying it, I'm like, okay, that's like giving a handout, that's socialism. And, I, and then once I really read into it and got to the third and fourth level derivative of the policy, it's actually very conservative. It's very individualistic. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense to heal the country's wounds once again need to be binded. We have to heal the gap. And one of the ways to do that is say, okay, well, I can't, you're never gonna be as rich as Jeff Bezos, but you know what? Your kids now have this platform where if they work hard, like our families did, some of you are gonna go on to live a big, big part of the American dream. We have to provide that for people. Anthony, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show as always. Great, great to be on. Yeah, uh, thank you, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna impose upon you. Please invite me back after the election so that we can do oh, we'll a talk recap of what the hell's going on. All right, is that a deal? <laughs> the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>